Hey, everybody, how are you this morning? Come on, come on, let's wake up. Hey, can we let the ladies know again how much we appreciate them singing this morning? Was that not awesome? So while you're clapping, I want you to hold up your note sheet, and I want you to hold up your device. Now, at the bottom of the notes page, permanently stamped on there, is this text to connect. Now, why in the world did we do this? Well, you know, you could easily come up and tell us information like, hey, I'm having a surgery next week, I need you to pray for me, or hey, I'd like you to sign up for baptism. There's so many different points and needs of communication. This is one way to do that. And so I actually did it this morning in the first service. I texted myself. If you text, connect to that number, you get a text back and it says, hey, what can we help you with? And there's seven choices. Number one is I'm new. Well, not like brand new. This week we'll have some babies born and they're going to be brand new. We've got some brand new babies in the room. And if you're saved, you're brand new, right? But this new means you're a first-time guest. And we'd love for you to Use that if you are a guest today to connect with us. Life groups, number three, serving, number four, giving, number five, prayer, number six, baptism, number seven, membership. This is a way, just one more way that you can reach out to us so we know what's going on in your life. And it helps to, in, 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 in some sense, it also helps us to own this. So if you're sitting there today and you look to your left and right, and you're like, you know, I don't really know them. Remember last week I coached you, don't ask them how long you've been coming. You may stick your foot in your mouth if you do that. What you do is say, hey, I don't know that I know you. Uh, is this, how long have you been coming? Then that lets them give you the chance. Well, I've been coming about three weeks. Hey, have you texted to connect yet? And you can say, look, right here. It's right here. And so use this as a tool. By the way, my name's Jamie. I'm the lead pastor here. And I'm excited uh, about all the things that are going on in this church, especially last week. We had 30 people attend our Discover Ebenezer class last Sunday and Wednesday. And we will have another session next month, the first Sunday and the first Wednesday uh, following that. What is Discover Ebenezer? It's not a membership class. It is a Discover class. It's a way for you to find out what's going on in the life of our church. Now, it is a first step. To membership. So if you came up to me and said, hey, I want to join the church, the first thing we're going to say is, hey, well, we need you to sign up for Discover because we need you to know what's going on in our church if you're going to join it. But it's not a membership class. It's for anyone who wants to find out about what's going on in Ebenezer, what we believe, and how you can connect and do life with us. That's what we're about. Our role is to give hope to our community. And we need hope today, don't we? We need more hope more than we realize and so in that regard, I'd like for you to take your device or your Bible, and I want you to turn to the second chapter of 1 John. Again, if you go to the end of the Bible and go back five books, you'll find the first of three letters that the Apostle John wrote. Last week, we talked about chapter 1 and this idea of God's love and his fellowship, this invitation that he gave you and me to step out of this darkness that we lived in and then because Jesus, fully God and fully man, died on the cross, paid for our sins, gave us a way to have a, a relationship with God. And my challenge to you was to think about the spectrum of connection in your life to God. Do you know him well or do you not know him well? You may be his child, but you want to have a relationship that's deepening with him. And so I was kind of thinking about that and thinking about this year, 2023 will mark 25 years of marriage to my wife. Yeah, I love her. 
I love her today more than I have ever loved her before. In the, the winter of 1996, a very long time ago, I had just transferred from Georgia Tech to what is now the University of North Georgia. When I transferred in, it was North Georgia College, and then it became North Georgia College and State University. I think I was the first class after that first renaming. And when I transferred in, all I had left was math classes and education classes. And so I met two people. I met this girl named Christy, and I met this guy named Joey. Because there's only like five people in the linear, I mean, everybody signs up for linear algebra, right? I did, because I had to have it. And so I met them, and they were like, hey, we, got, we like to go to lunch and hang out. Would you like to go? And I'm like, well, I can't, because I've got a class at that time, but maybe next quarter. So spring quarter comes around, and the, the, the uh, mascot at the time was a St. Bernard. And, and St. Bernard's up north wear kegs around their, their collar. And so the student center was called the keg. And so they told me, hey, meet us at the keg, and then we're going to go to lunch. So I'm in there at the bottom of the steps at the Regions Bank ATM, and all of a sudden the doors whoosh open, and glitter starts falling from the sky, and Laura walks in the door. It's kind of a Dreamweaver thing going on out of Wayne's world, you know? No, that is exactly the moment that I laid eyes on my wife. But there was a problem. She was seeing somebody, and I was seeing somebody. Well, that really wasn't a problem because we became really good friends. Started going to lunch. We'd hang out. So for, the, for that quarter, we got to know each other a little bit better, and, and then summer came. And right before we broke for summer, I got her number. Well, I mean, remember I said it was 1996. If you remember, there was a big event that happened in Georgia in the summer of 1996, the Summer Olympics. And so as summer kind of trekked on, I, I got to thinking about Laura and my relationship ended. I didn't know where hers was, but I knew, I mean, you know, I, maybe I had a fighting chance. And so I called her, and we got in touch with each other, and we said, hey, the torch for the Olympics is coming through Dahlonega. Let's go. Let's go. So we go, and I should have, I should have, if I th- thought about it, I would have brought the picture that we had made that day. It's on my Facebook page if you want to go diving through 400-something pictures to find it. I had brown hair, and I weighed 130 pounds, believe it or not. There was a time in my life that my hair was not gray and white. But we're standing there, and we still weren't dating yet. And a few weeks later, we kind of went on our first date. After finals, we met together. And at the time, she was working at Betty's Country Store in Helen. If y'all have ever been Betty's in Helen? So she was working there, and we met, and we ate lunch. I met her mom and got to go see Betty's. Then we went to church like four or five times together because I was a preacher and doing ministry, so I made it real exciting and drug her off to revival meetings everywhere. And somewhere in the, at the end of August, we went on our first date and saw a movie. So time passes, and I mean, I'm 21. I, we weren't dating just to have fun. I mean, we're, we're about to graduate college. I mean, when you date somebody at that point in your life, you're like, hey, you know, this could be the one. This could be the person I spend the rest of my life with. But we were also cautious because we came out of relationships. We are a little more mature than, you know, that kind of infatuation that you have when you're in high school and you're dating. You're like, I love you. I love you too. Well, come on. Y'all, y'all dated in the 80s and 90s. This is, this is how phone conversations took place in the 80s and 90s. Uh-huh. You still there? But you know what? For Laura and I, it never was that way. We never ran out of things to say to each other. In fact, we never fought. We never argued. Until one month before we got married. Wallpaper. 
We argued over wallpaper. Out of all the things that we could argue over, we argued over wallpaper. But we were, we were just kind of gradually, we just were dating and we're getting to know each other. And somewhere in the middle of that fall, my nephew, who is now 31, was with us. He was a preschooler. And I had this idea that I wanted a saltwater fish aquarium. I hate dogs and cats. If you don't know that about me, now you do. And I wanted a saltwater aquarium. So I'm like, hey, let's take Tyler and let's go to the, the pet store and look at the aquariums. And she's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So we go and I'm talking to the salesperson. And she took Tyler over to the side to look at the fish. And I'm talking and, and it just hit me. I need to check on him. So I look over. And she looks over at the same time, and our eyes made contact. And at that moment, I said, I love her. She's mine. She's going to be mine. I did. I, at that moment, I realized I'm in love with her. And so a few months later, I decided it was time to go buy a ring. Now, gentlemen, I don't know about you, but I can't go into Bass Pro and pick a lure out without my brain breaking. There's so much stuff. And so I wanted to make sure as much as I loved her, that I got her a good ring. I don't, God, I feel sorry for you guys that uh, have to buy rings today because even back then, I mean, I had to consider that my pockets were pretty shallow at that time, but I wanted to buy her the best because she was the best. And so when you start shopping, you learn quickly the three C's. The three C's of a diamond, the cut, the clarity, and the, the carrot. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm standing there with this salesperson, and, and like they had this section, which was way out of my budget. They had this section, it was like, oh my gosh, this is killing me. But there was this one section, I was like, surely there's a diamond in the rough in this case. And so I think it was a lady, and she gets the rings out and puts them on her hand, and she's holding it out. And if you know anything about those three C's, the cut is really what makes that diamond pop, makes it sparkle. And when you look at clarity, it's talking about, like, are there internal or external blemishes? Because they can have those, because this wasn't made in a lab. Diamonds are made in the wild. They're, they're under intense pressure and temperature pressing those carbon atoms together to produce the hardest substance on the face of the planet. The only thing that can cut diamond is what? A diamond. I can't remember what you call that ranking, but it's a number 10 in hardness. Like there's nothing stronger than that diamond. It's the only thing that can cut a diamond. And so I look, and this one diamond, I mean, it was just it was gorgeous. It sparkled and glistened like a star at night. I'm like, that's the one. Now, when I tell you that it was only like 0.6 of a carat, then you understand how poor I was. But to this day, she still has that ring. We never reset it into anything else. And it's beautiful. And to me, it was perfect. It was perfect for the one that I considered to be perfect. You see, perfection in this sense does not mean unblemished. In fact, they took that diamond and she said, well, now I want you to look at this. And she put a, a, a magnifying scope on it and I couldn't see the blemish. But to the naked eye, you would never see it. It is a beautiful stone. But it has a blemish. See, perfection in this sense is not 
it's not about mean that you're unblemished. It means a qualitative whole that has been made. It's a declaration. See, when God found you and me, we're like a diamond. And God is inviting us into a process of perfection. Because, see, God loves you. And God has a plan for your life. And God wants to do something with you. But he has to change us. He has to take, like what I said, with a diamond in the rough and make us into something sparkles. And as we look at this second chapter of 1 John, I want you to zero in on the word perfect that appears in verse number 5. In fact, if you would stand, I'm going to only read the first five verses of the chapter, and then I'm going to do my very best (laughs) to give you six points from the chapter. Somebody told me I had 20 minutes. I'm just kidding. Starting in verse number 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Remember in chapter 1 we talked about the idea of darkness and light and following and walking in, in Christ's way. And for somebody who says they're without sin, they're a liar. John loves this word liar for some reason. But he says you're a liar if you think you're without sin. But if a Christian sins, we know we can confess our sins and ask for cleansing. And he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation. I don't know what what translation you have, but propitiation, I want you to think mercy seat. I'll explain that in a little bit. For our sins, the covering for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the entire world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commands, there's that word again, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in Let's pray. Father, as we read this today, Lord, let us put ourselves under your mighty hand and allow you to do what you want to do with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As you read and see this, there's a lot of parallels between the book of 1 John, I believe, and what's called the upper room discourse of the gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17. A lot of those same themes. But this idea of perfection Paul talks about it in Philippians he, when he says in 1.6 that he was confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And when we hear this word, we're not talking about being unblemished. We're talking about this process by which God is bringing us from where we used to be to something different and new today. And so I'm just going to ask you today as we're looking through these verses How is your walk with Jesus? After 25 years of marriage, I can tell you that my marriage is stronger with Laura because I moved from infatuation to nurture-type love. Now, when you fall in love with somebody, you know physical attraction is important. But we're beyond that. One, because I've put on 50-something pounds since we got married. 
No, I mean, I'm being serious that when you go through the trials of a marriage, when you go through the tensions of a marriage, when you go through the conflicts of marriage, it makes you a better person. Like that diamond, going through the heat and the pressure, it makes you something different. And in our walk with Christ, he is taking us through a process to deepen our faith and change us. When you were saved, I don't know if you were saved as a kid or a teenager or as an adult, when you came down to an altar or wherever you were, God didn't expect you to stay there. He wants to change you. For example, some of you may have gone to an altar when you were very young because you were scared of hell. I'm scared of hell. But that's geography. Geography is where I will end up in my destination when I leave this world. Will I be in heaven or will I be in hell? Will I pass judgment or will I receive its due penalty? That is something to be scared of. But the reason we deserve judgment is because we are sinners. And Jesus bore our sin on the cross. A cruel death bore for the ugliness of your sin and mine. A great price was paid. And so when we talk about this idea, look at at what Paul also said in chapter 3 of Philippians. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. He's not perfected yet, but he embraces this process. He says in verse 14, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. What attitude? That I'm going to follow Jesus with everything I have. Why? Because Jesus paid it all for me. Now I need to give him my life. Listen, folks. When you accept Jesus Christ, he saves you fully. And he takes your sin away. But I think you need to make a conscious decision after that. Are you going to follow him? When you read the Gospels, you find out there were people that actually left Jesus. Especially when he started talking about who, who drinks my blood and eats my body. And they freaked out about that and they left. Have you also made a conscious decision that you're going to follow Jesus with everything that you have? And why would you want to do that? Because he has called us to perfection. See, love, this is that big blank at the bottom of your outline. Love is seeking transformation more than the world. The things of this world is enticing the comforts of this world is enticing. You want me to prove it to you? Watch this. Do you love the price of eggs? No, because you were comfortable when they were cheap. And now you're not. We love the comforts of this world. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to suffer. We don't like to go through trials. But it's the very things that God uses in your life and mine to make us into a beautiful diamond. And so let me give you quickly these six things, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance because I cannot hit every verse. I wish I could, but I can't. Not today. Because the point that I want to make is that we embrace transformation. And next week, we're going to impact that a little bit more. But I want you to see that the love of God wants to move you to perfection away from this world. So the very first thing here, the, the, the very first thing that helps me to see perfection in Christ is that we have an advocate. We have an advocate. 
that should sound familiar because if you turn over into the Gospel of John in chapter 16, he says, but I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper, the advocate, will not come to you. To whom is he referring? He's referring to the Holy Spirit. But in this verse, Jesus is the advocate. Now, do the math. Jesus is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. That's two of the three persons of the Trinity. God is for you. I have some family members that serve as court advocates in the defect for the defect system. And you know as well as I do some of the ugliness that kids go through. The abuse and the abandonment and the hurt. And here they are now scared and petrified standing before this judge that's about to make a decision for their future. Thankfully, somebody decided, you know what, we're going to give them a court-appointed advocate. Someone to speak up for them. Someone to stand up for them. Someone to care about them. And that's Jesus Christ for you and for me. Jesus Christ right now is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for you and for me. And so John says, my little children, he loves the readers. He loves them. I mean, to this point in my life, there's only three people that I call my little children. And they're not so little anymore. They sit right down here. But if I were John and I'm speaking to my flock and I called you my little children, is that not a term of endearment? He loves his readers and he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. He's calling them to get out of this lifestyle. They're still living in the darkness. Their confession and their lifestyle isn't lining up. He said, but if anyone sins, listen to this, folks. He is our advocate. He's walked where you walked. He's experienced what you experienced, but without sin. And now he is up there. And he is standing in the gap for you and for me. So when you feel alone and you feel stuck and you feel like throwing the towel in and you feel like God's left you, he hasn't. He is your advocate. And he promised that the Spirit would come and he would be our advocate when he was gone. What better system can you find than the very God of the universe, the creator, living in us and we living in him? And if that's happening, then change should be happening. How is it that the Holy Spirit could live in our lives, but yet wholly not live out in our lives? God is calling us to a life of holiness, set-apartness. And we don't have to do this alone. In fact, you can't do it alone. You need someone to be your advocate, and his name is Jesus. So that's one thing about perfection. The second thing is, point two, I want you to hear this very carefully. We are completely forgiven. Not partially. Not halfway. Jesus didn't put a down payment on your forgiveness. When you prayed to accept Christ and you made that profession, Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God who died on my cross to take my sin away. Your sin was completely forgiven. And it saddens me when I see Christians living in bondage because they'll claim that they, to, they claim to know Christ, but they still think they're the ones that's got to cover their sin up. They still live this 
this, in this body of shame, just like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with fig leaves, Jesus took care of that. In fact, that word propitiation in verse number two, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In fact, how many of you know or have seen a, a depiction of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like? The Ark of the Covenant was, was this instrument, this piece of furniture that existed in the, it was the centerpiece of the tabernacle later to, to be taken into the temple. And it was a box. And it was hollow on the inside. And there was a lid on top of the box. And it was carved with two cherubim or two angels that were facing each other. And this box existed in what was called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in there. Because it was declared holy. Because the presence of God would come in and he would hover over what's called, that lid, it's called the mercy seat. And so inside the box, inside the ark, are three items. And one of those items is the stone tablet upon which the, 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 the Ten Commandments or the Old Covenant was written. And that Old Covenant was the very thing that declared you, me, the Jews, guilty. The law was given to reveal our guilt. So here's this box. Here's this lid. Here's this, these two angels. And this is where God's presence is going to come. And his presence is looking through the box at the very declaration of our guilt. And so what the high priest would do is he'd go find a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb. And he'd take that little innocent lamb and he'd kill it. And he'd take that blood. And I don't miss this. Don't miss this. He took that blood and he sprinkled it on top of the mercy seat so that it covered the very thing that declared my guilt. Ladies and gentlemen, the propitiation of God, the covering of God has taken away all of your sin. Not some of your sin, not a little bit of your sin. He's covered all of your sin. And if I choose to continue walking in the darkness, there's no greater place of discomfort in this world than when a spirit-filled Christian continues to dabble in the things that they were set free from. And it happens continually over and over again. But guys, listen, I'm trying to exalt Christ above all things today. I'm trying to lift him up in your eyes to know he said that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive my sin and take my unrighteousness away because I can't do it and you can't do it we have an advocate who has completely forgiven us and now point number three he's inviting us to follow his commands he's inviting us to follow his commands the one who says in verse four I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments he's a liar and the truth is not in him if Jesus Christ gave everything he has for you and for me, if I'm going to step into this path of perfection so that I can be in fellowship more deeply with the Father, then it only makes sense that I would lay down everything I have and take up my cross and follow him as well. And it, only in that can I find life. I don't know about you. I've had a cold for a few weeks, and I'm ready to get my energy back. When I have full energy, oh man, it's awesome, isn't it? 
When you're feeling sluggish, when you're feeling down, that's not life. What I want to do, spiritually speaking, is be able to tap into that source of life that pushes me, propels me to follow him. Look, at, look again at the text. He says in verse number 5, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now, I want you to focus on that phrase, love of God, because here's two things. Now, that could mean either A, the love of God, the description of the love that's been extended to us, or it's directional, love for God. Can I argue that it's the second one? Let me show you. If you go back to the Gospel of John, we see a couple of things. Number one, we see in 1415, he said to them, if you love me, you will keep my commands. See, there's, there, there's something that has to happen first. I, I need to step into taking the love and giving it back to the Lord because this is the first time love appears in the book because we've called this what is love. Now we've been introduced to love. The love for God is more or less based upon the love from God. I love God because he loves me. And because of that, because of that very thing, then it should drive me to want to keep his commands. When we go to the very basis of the new covenant, he says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey my commands. See, guys, we can't do this on our own. We have an advocate who sent an advocate who has completely washed me and forgiven me of my sins, and now he's inviting me to follow him, and he's going to give me the power, the direction, and the ideas. What better can I ask for? He's just inviting us to come along for the ride. And the only thing he's saying that's holding them back is that they love sin more than they love perfection. He goes on to say in in 14, he said, He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will also be loved by my Father. When you put all that together, it's not what I know, it's who I know. It's not what I know, it's who I know. I can be connected with the Lord and be in ignorance. I could be the dumbest person on the face of the planet and still be connected with the Lord. Why? Because it depends on him, not me. And it's through this love that we deepen our knowledge with the Lord. So it's like, okay, wait a minute. You just said I could be the dumbest person to have a relationship with the Lord. Yes, you can. But by having a relationship with him, we begin to experience him. We begin to learn him. We begin to know him. If we do that, then we know his ways. And we know where he's leading us. He says in verse 6, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. That's why Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what he's extending to you. And now you know what? This, this next one's going to blow your brain. Because if the love of God lives in me and I love the Lord and the Lord's loving me, then there's only one way that that gets outputted, and it's this. We have one another. We have one another. The greatest gift that you and I have been given is you and I. What? Yeah, it's you and me. God has called us 
do this together. In fact, I would argue that it is almost impossible to live a faith life by yourself. Recently read that there's been an increase, you know, because of COVID in the number of people that are satisfied with only doing church at home by themselves. Think about what I just said there. Do church at home by yourself. The word church comes from a word called ecclesia, the called out ones. It is a gathering. You can't do church by yourself. It's impossible. And you might can learn some things about God. You might learn some life lessons that's going to make you a better person. But you can't experience the love of God without the you and I part of it. And that's what he's calling us to do. Notice what he says here in verse 7. He switches the pronoun because he was talking, uh, he was using the word we a lot. Now he says you. You have an old commandment which you've known from the beginning. What commandment? Love God, love others. But now I have this new commandment because Jesus has shown up. He said the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in, in darkness until now. What, what, what happened? Jesus showed up. We do not have the permission to hate our brother. There is not a passage in Scripture that gives you and me the permission to hate anyone, actually. He actually told us in Matthew 5 to love our enemy. And I'm telling you, man, this is, this is some heavy stuff, but at the same time, this is the lane. An advocate who has completely forgiven me, who has asked me to follow him, obey his commands, and now he's saying to do this to one another, there's this sharp polity between light and darkness here that is affecting the moral categories of our life. If I'm walking in the light and he is love, then I'm saying I'm signing up for the love part. And you and I need him to make this possible. He said in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, it says go beat him up. No, it doesn't say that. It says, leave your offering there and go make things right. You know what I take that to mean? Loving your brother is as much an act of worship as the words you sang in the first part of this service. That loving your brother or your sister is as important as the tithe that you give. That loving your brother and sister is as, as important as praying. That's the invitation he's given us today. Y'all remember the story of a man named Dick Hoyt. He had a son named Rick. And Rick was a, par- a quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. And he wanted to run a marathon. He couldn't run the marathon. He's a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. And so his dad, Dick, decided, you know what? I'm going to make this happen. And he started training in 1980. And you go back and look at some of the videos and the pictures. And starting in 1980... Dick Hoyt and his son Rick ran 32 Boston Marathons together. And Rick would have done zero had he not had his dad. His dad passed away two years ago. And I'm telling you, the impression is this. Guys, we're not called to run solo. We're called to run together. And in doing so, we've been perfected. Fifth fifth point here, and I'm going to kind of put fifth and five and six together. And I'm just going to ask you to go back and read 12 through 17. But number five is this, that we have been prepared. In the next three, four verses, he begins to talk to fathers and sons and little children. He, he, He names those, but if you take and consider the things he's asking them to do, it can be summarized with four statements. 
we're forgiven, we know the Father, we have his word, and we have victory over the enemy. Let me repeat those for you. We've been forgiven, we know that, completely forgiven. We know the Father because we're now walking in light. We have his word, we're following his command, but the only missing piece there is I have victory over the enemy, Satan. And Satan's too, too modus operandi, the things he does to lead you and I astray is he accuses us and he tempts us. The only reason I wouldn't have fellowship with the Lord is because I'm listening to him. By the time we finish this book, we're going to find that Satan has power in this world. When Adam and Eve sinned and they submitted to the serpent, they reversed creation. It was supposed to be God-man creation. But when they listened to creation, they reversed that. And now creation has power over creation. That's why everything is so messed up. The problems in this world have nothing to do with God. It has to do with us. We are sinners, and sin exists in this world, and there's coming a day, and John knew this in this passage, there's coming a day when Jesus is coming back, and he's going to render judgment. And for those of us that know Christ Jesus, we will be saved from that judgment. But if we do not know him, we're destined for a devil's hell. If we love living in this world enough, we'll spend eternity with him. As Chip Ingram says, hell has a door with a lock on the inside. It's a choice that people make. If you're here this morning, I'm not trying to scare hell into you. I'm trying to talk you out of hell. That Jesus has extended an invitation to you to perfect you. He has prepared us, but that last point, we've been called to be separated. If I'm going to be perfected, I have to be separated from the very thing that's dragging me down. You know this verse a little bit from verse number 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from God. It's from this world. This world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God endures forever. Creation has been subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's, been in, it's under curse. But ladies and gentlemen, God's calling us. The truth is, he's overcome this world. He said in John 16, 33, I've spoken these things so that you'll have peace. How many of you feel out of peace this morning? You're worried about the economy. You're worried about government. You're worried for your life. You're worried about your safety. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about your success. You're worried about your future. He said, these things I've spoken that you can have peace. In this world, you will have tri tribulation, problems. But he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. That advocate who's completely forgiven you, who's asked you to follow him and obey him, that one loves you with an everlasting love. And he's inviting you and me today to seek transformation more than the world. So I want to ask you just a question, kind of like cheese. Y'all like cheese? You know the reason why aged cheese is so good? Because the lactose breaks down and it's not so hard on your stomach. I didn't know that. I just thought it started stinking after a while. And people love stinky cheese. I don't like stinky cheese. But that's the aging process. It gets better with age. Just like my marriage with Laura. When we celebrate 25 years, May 30th, I can tell you I'm more in love with her and our marriage is stronger now than it's ever been. But you know, for some of you, that's not true. Especially in your spiritual life. 
You've claimed to have known Jesus for 20 years, but your relationship with him is here. Or maybe it's plateaued. Maybe it's growing. I hope it's growing. That's what we want it to do. If I'm going to have fellowship with him, remember last week, last week we talked about to have fellowship with him, I need to get out of darkness. Today I'm asking you, what is the path of perfection that God has put you in? And just like that diamond, God wants to mold you and shape you and make you into what he wants for your life. And when I find that perfection, I will find the life, the eternal life, the abundant life that Christ has called me to. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this time of invitation. Lord, I want to challenge the people in this room as I'm praying to you that, God, we would analyze our hearts and our lives. Maybe today we're honest to say, I need to get down to that altar and I need to pray and ask you to forgive me of my sins. Maybe there's a habitual sin in their life that, that they're willing to say, you know what, Lord, I've got to put this before you. But I need to know that I can stand confident with that advocate because I keep messing up the same way. God, would you give them a path where they can find freedom from that? Would you put people in their path that would help them and, and work with them and encourage them? God, would you touch us today that whatever our next step is in deepening our relationship with you, that we would look at these six things, how we see Jesus, how we're following Jesus, and how we're viewing the world in the sense of how I'm relating to you. And that if I want a deeper relationship with you, Lord, Number one, I've got to deal with my sin. But number two, I have to ask my question, what am I do, doing to fuel that relationship? So touch us now as we stand to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.